Let us pray. Father, almighty, eternal creator, we come to you knowing that you are our maker, that we do not belong to ourselves, but to you. You are the author of all, the author of all life. We pray you would give us life as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to begin by reading to you two quotations. The first quote is from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Second quote is from Cecil Francis Alexander. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. These are two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. According to Macbeth, life is a sort of tragic joke. It has its hour on the stage, but then it's gone and heard no more. Death comes to all, and life is nothing more than a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There's no ultimate or objective meaning to things, no rhyme or reason to reality. If we were to put a more positive spin on this perspective, we could say that any meaning that exists is imposed on the world by man. The world itself has no meaning or significance in itself. Humankind chooses to give it meaning or value or not. In the words of Planned Parenthood, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Or in the simpler words of Hannah Montana, life's what you make it. According to Cecil Francis Alexander, life is a gift of God the Creator. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. If God exists, and if God made everything, then life is no joke. Its author is no idiot. And there is, in fact, a deeper underlying meaning to things. It's not just something we impose on the world. It's something we discover in the world itself because its creator made it with purpose. Meaning is built into things by God the creator. And our task is to discover that meaning, to enter into that meaning, to live according to it. And that's what Genesis chapter 1 helps us to do. 
Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells us about the beginning of the universe, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin and death, and the beginning of redemption. Genesis 1 through 11 are more universal in scope, dealing with matters that directly appertain to all men everywhere. Creation, fall, flood, the dispersing of all peoples across the earth. Genesis 12 to 50 are more narrow in scope. They deal almost exclusively with God's dealing with a specific family, with four generations of a Middle Eastern family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So those are the two major parts. Between those two, you might think the more important part, the part that uh, you should pay more attention to is the one that uh, has to do with the grand cosmic global events affecting all of mankind. But notably, there are 50 chapters in Genesis, and the author only spends 11 chapters on those matters. He spends 39 chapters on the life of the patriarchs. So in the book of Genesis, the universal is simply a prelude to to God's covenant dealings with Abraham. And the meaning of that is this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob isn't just some lesser deity of minor significance, but rather he is the creator of all things and the only true God over all the nations. And through Abraham, he is going to realize his global purposes. Through his offspring, he will bring blessing to all nations. And so it is that the book of Genesis begins with an account of the creation of the world, the heavens and earth. It's a very well-known passage of scripture, also a very controversial one as it serves as the epicenter of debates about the age of the earth, science versus religion, evolution versus creationism, on and on we could go. And this chapter is indeed relevant for some of those debates. But we need to be careful when we approach a chapter like this that we're not simply bringing our own modern concerns and questions to it in a way that obscures what its concerns are. You see, if I spent this sermon arguing for a particular view of the age of the earth or the particular view of the length of the creation days, I would have just barely skimmed the surface of what Genesis 1 is actually trying to say. Because more fundamental than simply how old is the world are the questions, why is there a world? And what does it mean? And where does it come from? Genesis 1 answers these questions of the meaning of reality by pointing us back to its origin in God's acts of creation. So we begin with verses 1 through 2. The book begins with those famous words In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This seems to be referring to an initial act of creation prior to everything else that we read. Because in verses 2 to 3, the earth is treated as there already existing. The sun, moon, and stars don't show up till day 4. So I think heaven in verse 1 is the spiritual realm of heaven where God dwells with angels that he creates. While the earth is the material 
realm where man and other creatures would dwell. But God does not create the world in a finished and perfect state. Verse 2 says that it was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The world's been created, but it's presented as though it were a sort of unformed mass, wholly covered with water, shrouded in darkness, and void of any life. But God's not going to leave it that way. Verse 2 ends with a statement, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Something is about to happen. God is about to roll up his sleeves and get to work. You see, God in his wisdom decided not to create everything all at once in its fullest, most complete state. He created it in stages, step by step, improving it, making it better through a course of time, through a course of six days of creation. And then on the seventh, he ceases from his labors and sets that apart and blesses it. God didn't need to do it that way. He could have just snapped his fingers and everything was all created all at once. But in doing so, he sets the example for our own work week. As we work six and rest seventh, we are following the example God set for us first. We won't go through each day of creation sequentially, but instead I want us to notice a few features of this passage that will help us understand it as a whole. So here are four features of Genesis 1 that I'd like us to see. The first feature to notice is forming and filling. In the six days of creation, God is solving the problems that were mentioned in verse 2. Verse 2 says the earth was formless and void. In days 1 to 3, God solves the problem of formlessness separating and dividing, distinguishing things from one another. And in days four to six, God solves the problem of emptiness by filling the realms of days one through three with creatures. So these two sets of days, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, map on to each other. Day one and four go together. Day two and five go together. Day three and six go together. Day one, forming, God creates light. Day four, filling. God creates the luminaries, sun, moon, and stars. Day two, forming. God creates the expanse and separates the waters above from the waters below. Day five, filling. God creates birds and fish. Day three, forming. God creates land and plants. Day six, filling. God creates land animals and man. The earth is formless and void, so God goes about bringing order to the formless and fullness to what is lacking. So that's the first thing to notice, forming and filling. The second thing to notice is the way, or rather the different ways, that God creates. When we think about God creating, we think of uh, God just speaking, and there it is. Creation ex nihilo by the word of God, and we indeed read of that in this passage, but there are actually various ways that he goes about his work of creation. So first we do have creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. We see that in verse one, the creation of light from darkness or the creation of the sun, moon, and stars in day four. And this mode of creating 
emphasizes God's authority, sovereignty, and power. That he is able to simply call things into existence which do not exist merely by his word. But the second way of creating that we see in this passage is by dividing, separating, distinguishing, forming boundaries, bringing order to chaos. That's what God does in days one to three. He calls light into being, but then he separates the light from the darkness, creating day and night. He separates the waters above from the waters below, creating the expanse of the heavens. And he gathers the waters into one place so that dry land may appear, distinguishing dry land from sea. When he creates plants and animals, he creates them according to their kinds. Remember hearing that as we read it? According to their kinds. According to their kinds. This shows us God is the one who gives things their order and structure, their shape and form. He doesn't just bring things into existence as an undefined glob, but he brings order to chaos by defining, uh, by defining, distinguishing, separating things out according to their natures. The third and final way that God creates that we see in this passage is God creates through secondary causes. God creates through secondary causes. So in some, ca- in some cases, God creates by means of other created things. He doesn't just say, let there be grass in day three, but he says, let the earth bring forth grass. He doesn't just say, let there be living creatures on the earth, but he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Even man was not created ex nihilo, his body at any rate, but by the Lord gathering together the dust of the ground and breathing into it the breath of life. And this shows that God works through the medium of his own creation. He is not just the one who is distant and far off, who just speaks things and they exist as the transcendent one, but he also accomplishes his purposes in and through his creation and not apart from it. He imparts to creation the principle of life and propagation, the ability to reproduce and increase and grow and give birth. So we see the different ways that God creates and what that shows us about God. The third thing to notice about Genesis 1 is that creation has meaning and value. Creation wasn't an accident. In some ancient Near Eastern mythologies and religions, creation was not on purpose, or it was kind of an afterthought. But in Genesis 1, God creates things purposefully. He creates things with a certain nature, with a certain directedness, and with a certain purpose. Meaning is baked into creation as God made it. Creation is charged with significance and purpose. It is value-laden. We see this through God's assessment of his creation. In this passage, over and over again, he looks at what he made and he saw that it was good and he declares it to be good over and over again. He sees it's good and then he declares it to be what it really is. There is an inherent goodness to creation because it is God's creation. It bears his handiwork. 
We also see God just saying what the purposes for things are. Verse 16, he says, as he creates sun, moon, and stars, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. So they aren't just there for no reason, and then we decide to assign a reason to it. No, God creates it with a purpose, and he even says what that purpose is. And of course, the commissions he gives as well. He tells the fish and birds, be fruitful and multiply. He tells man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We see that God is purposeful in his creation. There is a purpose and a meaning and a value inherent to the creation as God made it. And it's at this point we should notice the fourth and final feature of Genesis 1 which is that man is created as the pinnacle of creation. Man is the pinnacle. He is created last. His creation is preceded by a divine self-deliberation. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. He, only out of all the creatures, is said to be made in the image of God. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's been a long history of debate in the Christian church among various theologians as to what exactly that image of God consists in. But most basically, what it means is man was created in a way that is particularly like God in a unique way. Man is created as God's image, meaning man is like God in a unique way. James chapter 3, the New Testament book of James, alludes to this and draws the conclusion that one must never curse a fellow human being because he is made in the image and likeness of God. On the whole, it seems best not to limit this image, this image, to one aspect of man or another. Rather, the whole of man is God's image, is like God in many unique respects. The New Testament speaks of being remade in God's image in true righteousness and holiness. So for man to be in the image of God means to be like him morally speaking. But it means more than that too. Here man is charged to have dominion and rule over the creatures. In his ruling over creation, man images forth God's own rule and dominion over all things. He is God's vice regent on earth, reigning over creation as a good king and a good queen, seeking the good of all creation under him in submission to God as king over all. Now, as we draw to a conclusion, we might ask, Why is this relevant for us on this particular Sunday of the church year? You may have noticed on your proper sheet that today is Septuagesima Sunday, or the third Sunday before Lent. Septuagesima is the Latin word for 70th, referring to the Sunday that is approximately 70 days from Easter. Next Sunday is called Sexagesima, 60. Uh, 60th, and the following is called Quinquagesima, 50th. So this Jessima season that we're in for the next three Sundays is preparing us for Lent, 
preparing us for that season of repentance and contrition for sin and of fasting. The Desima season is transitioning us out of Epiphany and into a new season of Lent, which is itself preparing us for Easter. So why is Genesis 1 appointed this morning? One answer we might give is, well, for the rest of the year, these Sunday first lessons, the first appointed lessons for morning and evening prayer on Sundays, are going to just take us right through the Old Testament in more or less sequential order, skipping over certain portions to be sure. And Genesis 1 is simply where we begin. But I think there's more to it than that. I think those who put our prayer book together were very intentional about why they chose things to be the way they are. Genesis 1 reminds us that sin and suffering and pain are not natural to God's creation. They are not just the way the world works. Sin, suffering, and death are not natural or necessary to the very being of creation itself. Rather, sin, suffering, and death are an invasive species like parasites that have latched onto something that came before them. And as we prepare to enter into a season of repentance and contrition and fasting, we do so remembering that God created everything good. As the collect that we will read in Lent says, he hates nothing that he has made. We live in a world that was created good by a God who is good, who is goodness itself. He hates nothing that he has made, and therefore he does forgive the sins of all those who are penitent. Genesis 1 teaches that everything created by God is good. All creatures, great and small, the Lord God made them all. And he created man in his own image to rule and have dominion over them in subservience to God. Man was created to rule creation under God as kings and queens under him. But instead, we have usurped the throne of God in our sin. And thus, our rule over creation has been frustrated. Instead of reigning, we have become slaves, slaves of Satan, sin, and death. Man encounters thorns and thistles, blood, sweat, and tears, and death. Woman encounters increased pains of childbirth and broken relationships with man. Man's relationship to God, to one another, and to the creation is broken and filled with hostility. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it like this, quoting Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author of Hebrews continues, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the new man. Jesus is the new Adam, the one who fulfills the creation mandate. He submitted himself entirely to the will of his father in obedience. 
He exercised dominion over creation, calming storms with a word, casting out demons and sicknesses, and bringing health and healing. Christ was fruitful and multiplied. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus was fruitful and multiplied through death, like a seed going into the ground, dying so that he might bring about new life, life for sinners like you and me. He bore our judgment and our rebellion and gave us his righteousness. He was crucified, died, and was buried. But then he rose again from the grave. And when did he do this? Luke Chapter 24, verse 46 says, on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. You might wonder, where did the scriptures say Jesus had to rise on the third day? And we might look back to the days of creation. On the third day of creation, the earth brought forth vegetation, the first fruits of creation. And on the third day after the crucifixion, Jesus arose again from the Grave, the first fruits of a new creation. The seed died, but then it brought forth new life. And that seed has multiplied. We too have been born again by the seed of the word of the gospel. Jesus is the great sower who has planted his seeds of life in the world. And the Holy Spirit plants those in our hearts so that we might bring forth fruit for God. You have uncreated yourself through your sin and rebellion. But come to Jesus and be recreated by his grace and righteousness. You have unmade yourself through sin, departing from God, and in so doing, alienating yourself from yourself, turning away from your own nature, running away from the good creation he placed you in, from reality itself. You have unmade yourself through sin. So be remade by his grace. Turn from your sin and repentance and to Christ in faith. He will restore what has been ruined, renew what has grown old, remake what has been destroyed, and enliven what is dead. Because you see, that work of God in your heart, causing you to repent and believe and turn to Jesus, is like being created all over again. It's as though God once more calls out, let light shine forth out of darkness, and it does. He shines in your heart to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you are never the same. You belong to Jesus now. You are a part of his recreation. The Lord who made all things is the one who will restore all things from its state of sin and destruction. And he will not stop until he has made all things new. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have created us. Lord, you are the word through whom all things were made. And we praise you also that you are the word made flesh who came that we might be remade, recreated, that the image of God marred and ruined by sin might be restored in us and we might be lifted up 
from our state of misery and put in the seat of kings and queens, reigning once more. Lord, we praise you for this grace. Give us hearts to receive it always. Shine your light of the gospel into our dark hearts all the days of our life and grant that we would walk in this faith and bear fruit for you. In your own name we pray. Amen.